Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Principal Analyst Ariel Trzinski to discuss the pandemic's lasting impact on healthcare and the challenges and opportunities ahead. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So maybe we should just kick off the conversation with a little bit of a distinction of a lot of our conversation will circle around virtual care, but how is that different than digital health? And why are we focusing on the virtual care component today? Sure, it's a great question, Jen, right? And so we hear, you know, digital health, right? Digital health is this larger category of technologies that are meant to empower patients ultimately, right? So empower consumers to take better charge of their health. Um, And so that includes a variety of different technologies technologies, including virtual care, right? So telehealth, telemedicine is something that we include in our definition of virtual care. So when we talk about virtual care at Forrester, we're talking about the interaction between a patient and clinician, right, that is enabled by technology, typically over um, essentially three different modalities are the most common. So we see audio only, we see video, and then we see asynchronous, um, secure, text or secure message right over a platform that's encrypted. Um, And so the way that people are engaging is to say, you know, I'm experiencing these symptoms or I need support for a chronic condition, for instance, and they're engaging with a clinician to get a diagnosis or to get support um, for their condition. And so we've seen an incredible amount of growth and traction around virtual care as a result of the pandemic, um, as many of us had to shelter in place. Unfortunately, we saw many um, individuals putting off care. So even as of, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the Census Bureau had reported that about 24% of consumers we're delaying care as a result of the pandemic. Um, And so that means we have cancers that are going undiagnosed. We have chronic conditions that are going unmanaged, for instance. Um, And so that is causing potential repercussions in terms of future medical spend, in terms of our inability to drive improved outcomes for those individuals. And so we've seen many clinicians turn to virtual care as a lifeline to maintain that continuity of care, for instance. Um, And so there's this, this huge push right around virtual care and then I would say much more broadly, right around that broad definition of digital health, right, which includes virtual care. It would include, you know, remote patient monitoring, for instance, which could be, you know, a, um, a, a smart blood pressure cuff, for instance, right, that um, is Bluetooth enabled, connected to your phone. Um, you can collect that data on a daily basis and send it over to your physician um, so they can monitor you at home for instance, um, so that all of those technologies would be part of that digital health definition. And Ariel, when you say virtual care spiked, we mm-hmm. know that um, obviously uh, saw a big spike unexpectedly given the pandemic. Can you put that in context for us? What are we talking about in terms of numbers? What was it before? What is it now? Or what was it? Sure. We did some estimation for 2020. Uh, So this is pre-pandemic, where we expected approximately 30 million visits uh, over the course of 2020. And then, you know, March hit and suddenly, right, we're all um, at home and and we're putting off care in terms of going into uh, in-person visits. Um, And so we saw this huge uptick in terms of virtual care adoption. Um, And to give you one example, um, so the Mayo Clinic reported, you know, a 78% 
20% decrease in in-person visits between March and April of 2020, uh, but they experienced a 10,880% increase in virtual care visits over the same time frame. <laughs> so to give you just some context of the really quick shift that we saw right from in-person care to virtual care. Um, and so we you know, went back to our forecast and said, well, you know, that's not going to work. <laughs> it's not going to be 30 million visits if we start to see you know, this incredible increase um, in even just a short period of time. And so I worked with Viraj DaCosta, a forecast analyst, um, and we teamed up to create an updated forecast for virtual care. And so what we estimated was approximately 480 million visits um, over the course of 2020. Uh, we do expect you know, a slight downtick in terms of 2021. And I will say that's more due to a normalization of virtual care. It's not necessarily going to be a sustained decline. We expect to see you know, some patients um, returning to in-person visits, for instance, because they start to feel safe about going back into the office. And so where something may have had to be more of a virtual first because the office was closed, we see offices starting to reopen and patients are feeling more comfortable going back uh, for in-person care. Um, so certainly, you know, a huge jump right from, you know, 32 million visits to 481 million visits uh, just over, you know, the course of a matter of months, right? And, and what the pandemic has done to drive uh, that acceleration. Any surprises in the, I don't know, the, what constituted that uptick in terms of what types of consumers utilize it or didn't or what type of cases um, that were treated or consulted via virtual care? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think, you know, initially when we thought about virtual care, we thought, well, this will be in response to patients experiencing symptoms of COVID-19, for instance, right? We thought that it would be, you know, this um, lifeline for individuals that were feeling the fear of, of potentially symptoms. Um, we weren't quite sure how, you know, transmission was going to play out, <laughs> what it was going to look like in March. Um, I think we can all, you know, think back to that time in the sense of just incredible uncertainty and what the world looked like. And so initially we had thought that the majority of these visits would be done for COVID-19 as the primary diagnosis diagnosis or reason. And what we ultimately found in looking at the data, and we were able to get a lot of data from different vendors. Um, we did a lot of additional primary research um, to inform this forecast. And what we ultimately found is we've seen this seismic shift in existing physician networks, right? So your own PCP, your own clinicians, providing virtual care to their own patients. Um, and so we saw this huge shift towards chronic care management, towards general care management, less of a focus on urgent needs or COVID-19 symptoms. And so it was really exciting, honestly, to see this shift of, you know, suddenly this, this thing, right, that was previously treated um, as, you know, more of a, um, a nice to have, it suddenly became, you know, this normal way of, of managing chronic conditions, for instance, things like hypertension um, and asthma and, and other things that could be, you know, could benefit from more regular touch points with a patient and with a clinician. Um, we're suddenly experiencing, you know, this uptick of, of virtual care. So we were surprised by that. I would also call out mental health. Um, mental health was another area that, you know, we had been tracking well before the pandemic as a, a key area of focus, uh, but something that we saw, again, this huge shift over the course of the pandemic, where now we have, you know, in part a rising need for mental health support, 
So we know, you know, based off of some data from Lyra Health, for instance, 81% um, of employed individuals have felt some sense of negative emotion that is associated with a mental health condition. So a sense of um, anxiety or depression. Um, and so we have this rising need for support, um, but we also, you know, pre-pandemic faced a lot of challenges in access to mental health support. We don't have enough clinicians. <laughs> we don't have, you know, have clinicians in certain geographic areas. And so this advent of, of virtual care made it so that mental health was more accessible. Um, and so we saw a huge uptick, you know, very quickly. So for example, if you look at data from August, there's almost a 50-50 split between chronic care management claims and mental health virtual care claims. Um, and so it started to, to even out a bit um, from there, but it's you can take from that just these incredible surges of need. That's actually, it's exciting also, especially if you think about those chronic conditions. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if, if consumers, patients have, have started to now get used to virtual care for a chronic condition versus just a one-time episode, right, where they needed care, um, I would think that that suggests that they might stick with that mode um, going forward and kind of sustain that level of, of virtual care growth over time. Absolutely. Right. And so if we are able to, you know, shift to that more continuous model as well, right? So if you think about sitting in a clinician's office, right, that's a snapshot of you at a single moment of time. It's not taking into account, well, what happened, right, to Sharon last week or a week from now. And so, you know, suddenly by having these more frequent touch points, we're able to intervene earlier. Right, so we can catch exacerbations before they happen. If we introduce remote patient monitoring and we have you, you know, use a blood pressure cuff, for instance, um, or for you know checking you know weight on a regular basis, for instance, for a patient that has congestive heart failure, we can catch those exacerbations much earlier, which will ultimately lead to improved outcomes, um, better quality of life, <laughs> lower medical spend. Right, so there's a, a lot of um, you know, benefits to shifting to this more continuous model for very low upfront cost. When you think about the cost of a blood pressure cuff versus the cost of an admission or a readmission, for example. Um, and so the ROI is, is absolutely there when we look at remote patient monitoring um, and looking at, you know, what it can do to help shift um, the cost model within healthcare. I will also say, you know, health insurers have responded with increased reimbursement um, for remote patient monitoring, for instance. And so it's created this new opportunity for clinicians to establish a reoccurring revenue model, which is something that they had not previously been able to do. Um, and so suddenly you could be looking at up to $300 in revenue from just using remote patient monitoring capabilities for your patients that you're managing on a regular basis. So it's you know a benefit to clinicians as well that unfortunately amid a public health crisis have been facing a lot of financial strain. Um, so we, you know, just to, to maybe bring a lens into this. So when we look at the clinic landscape, we've seen 16,000 clinics closed. So physician practices over just the last year as a result of the pandemic. So that is due to, you know, people putting off care, like we talked about at the beginning of this conversation. Um, and so, you know, because of the lower volumes and lower revenue, we've lost about 8% of the physician workforce. 
uh, due to financial closures. And so that means right there, they also need this opportunity to generate some additional revenue so that they can keep the lights on um, and they can keep their doors open because unfortunately, as they close, it means that we create these new provider shortage areas. So individuals in more rural areas, for instance, suddenly are without a clinician, right? The closest clinician might be a hundred miles away. Um, and so if they have any sort of barrier to transportation, that means they no longer have access um, to a physical location for care. And so double clicking into the point about those putting off care, was that more acute in certain populations or, you know, do you have data about that? Yeah. So for our, our own consumer technographic data, we have um, been tracking that. So we know that millennials were actually more impacted um, by uh, delaying care. And so, you know, that might be, you know, due to additional challenges right, that that group might be facing in terms of, you know, they're not just, you know, working now suddenly, home is the office, home is daycare, home is all kinds of things, right? Home is school. Um, and so they've taken on, you know, these roles of, of wearing a lot of new hats. And unfortunately, you know, as a result are, are putting off care um, because there are a number of other pressing issues like making sure, um, you know, your, your kids are, are attending school, for instance, or there's um, concerns about uh, getting to the doctor's office. Um, I will say virtual care has helped address some of those issues where it can. Um, virtual care can't replace everything Right, in terms of ambulatory care. Um, so there will be you know, always instances where we have to get hands on the patient, for example. Um, we have to do you know, lab draws, for example, we have to do image, images. Um, and so you know, those, those things will still be better served either through a hybrid model where we do a virtual first appointment, for example, and then you know, ultimately if you need sutures or imaging or labs, we can do that after the fact um, or you know, going to a physical location in person um, would still be best in making sure you get care quickly. Um, but that is, is certainly something that we expect to continue to see play out in the years to come. So Ariel, I want to talk a little bit about, well, I want to, I guess I want to explore both sides of the equation, the the good side of, of what worked with virtual care, um, and then the challenges that are still ahead of us. I mean, talk about a test, right, in the past year of, of whether it's um, feasible or not. On, on the benefit side, let's explore the patient's perspective. What do what is the experience, generally speaking, that folks have had? Have they come and walked away with it in a positive light or a negative light? Yeah, so generally what we hear from patients, and again, this points back to our consumer technographic data, uh, we know that about 36% of consumers have indicated that the virtual care they received was just as effective as what they would have received in person. Um, 34% expect to seek virtual care again in the future. And so that's really promising when we think about the opportunity um, for what virtual care can do to ensure we get you know, access to care quickly. Again, right, we don't want people putting things off because they can't take time off from work, for example. Um, it's brought an incredible amount of convenience. It's overcoming barriers to you know, lack of transportation, for example, um, lack of childcare. If you can't you know, take time off from work, you don't want to have to um, try and, and bring the kids into the office, for instance, um, you can do a virtual care visit. We've also seen you know, reduced hospital admissions. We see you know, reduced cost um, 
or reduction of utilization for high cost services, for instance, we see more patients managing their health more proactively as they have access to these tools. Because instead of saying, you know, well, it's not bad enough, right? I'm not going to get in the car or I'm not going to put the kids in the car and go drive um, to my PCP's office or I'm not going to, you know, wait to make an appointment um, and let it get worse and then ultimately show up at the urgent care or even worse, the emergency department people are being more proactive and getting the care that they need when they need it. Um, and so it's, it's really exciting in terms of, of the benefits. Um, and when we think about social determinants of health, right, and a lot, lack of transportation, um, we've also seen, you know, some changes to um, public transportation schedules as well, right, amid the pandemic. As we have less commuters, we've also seen the repercussions of um, less accessibility to public transportation um, and what that can do from a from a healthcare perspective. So there's a lot of benefits that this can deliver to providers, to health insurers, as well as to consumers. So on that consumer though, when you started with those data points, I have to say the the 36 that say that it was as effective as if they were in person is is definitely impressive. The 34% that say they would seek virtual care again, I know you said that sounded positive. I would have thought it would have been higher. That uh, what were you expecting? What numbers were, or yeah. what have we seen in the past? Is that a jump? It's a fair point, right? I think what is interesting, right, when you try to compare healthcare to other industries, right, other experiences, uh, we do tend to see lower percentages. <laughs> and so this is something um, that is, you know, it's due to you know the acuity. Um, in some cases of, of what folks are experiencing. Um, when we look at you know, prior adoption of virtual care, for instance, within, um, if you look at a program, for example, that was offered by a large health insurer, they were in the single digits. <laughs> so they had you know, maybe one to 2% of their member base was using virtual care pre-pandemic. And so any sort of shift up right, from that number, right, of one to 2%, is significant. Uh, when we looked at the most successful virtual care programs pre-pandemic as part of our evaluative wave research, um, some of the most successful programs had achieved higher levels of engagement. So 25% um, of their population, so managed population had adopted or used virtual care, for example, um, and had expected to use it again because they had a positive um, experience. I will also call out, you know, in terms of low adoption, one of the biggest barriers that we observed pre-pandemic is that patients right, or consumers were not able to connect to their own clinician, right? someone that had their data, someone that they trusted, that they had a relationship with. And so suddenly, right, as a result of the pandemic and enabling all of these clinician networks to suddenly treat their own patients virtually, um, we've had over 80% of the clinician workforce in the US suddenly be able to deliver virtual care. Right, over a course of, of a matter of months. And so now right, I can connect to my PCP over virtual care. I can connect to the person that I trust, that I've seen in person, um, that knows me, knows my family, et cetera. And so I you know, am now excited right, about being able to use virtual care again. And so we've seen an increase right, over the course of the last year. That is a number that we will continue to watch <laughs> over the course of the coming year. Um, and hopefully you know, we will continue to see more consumers experience the benefits of virtual care and we'll continue to see that number increase. I do expect that number to increase. Um, as a result of our, our virtual care wave, which is in flight now, we have heard from 
you know, I've talked to over 40 health systems as part of this virtual care wave. Um, and we consistently hear that they expect about 30% of their ambulatory care visits to continue to be delivered virtually. Um, so it's, it's really exciting to also hear the long-term impacts uh, that this is having on, on making healthcare more accessible. So what's the next step? I'm, I, I, there's still more to go, I would say, right? There's definitely challenges that still exist. What are the, you know, I guess the top priorities across the entire healthcare system and everyone involved in trying to get to more digital um, healthcare and, and virtual care? What are the top priorities there to, to make some more improvements? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is something that we we attempted to dig into with our wave as well. Um, so a, a key thing that we looked at was, you know, do you design for equity, for instance, right? Are you accounting for uh, multiple personas, right? And designing your products with, you know, this with a diverse population in mind, right? And thinking about the fact that not everyone has access to high-speed internet, right? or, or you know, can uh, do a video visit, for instance. So we looked at, you know, do you design for accessibility? Do you design for equity? Um, how do you create personas? Um, what do you do from an audience prioritization level? Um, and what do you do? What goes into your discovery? process right of that software development life cycle um, and who do you talk to right how do you approach more inclusive design for instance um, I will say this is an area that a lot of vendors were lacking and so you know we hope that as we make virtual care something you know that is suddenly used by so many more individuals right as we continue to get feedback from both consumers but also clinicians we will start to be able to make um, some really you know, tangible incremental improvements to the experience. Um, again, you know, we'll point back to pre-pandemic where we had really low adoption rates. In some cases, one to two percent of that managed population. You know, it's hard to make you know big changes to the experience when you have these initiatives that are in their infancy. And so as you start to be able to amass this larger set of data, um, larger set of, of feedback, um, you can start to make really you know, important big changes to the experience and start to make it work for all people. Um, and so for me, that that's really exciting to see some of the vendors that are doing that work. Um, I hope to see more over the course of, of the next year. Um, this is you know something that we have to redesign for um, you know, thinking across age, across gender, um, the way that we, you know, identify our gender as well, um, race, socioeconomic background, um, we have to account for, you know, internet access. Over a quarter of the Medicare population does not have access to high-speed internet. And so this has become, you know, a lifeline for chronic care. And so if we don't overcome some of these barriers, right, we can't, you know, see some of, of the you know, big benefits that we just talked about um, in terms of lower medical spend, for instance, right, and making healthcare more accessible. We truly have to rethink how we design uh, these products. So as we sit here today, March 2021, vaccines are being rolled out. What do you anticipate the effect to be on, on virtual care? Obviously, you've, you know, talked about um, increases and in, visits and things of that nature, but it, will this have a palpable effect? Will it uptick, downtick? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, you know, the vaccine availability as well as the inoculation rate is something that we accounted for in the forecast. Um, and we felt that this was going to be the biggest driver of 
how virtual care you know, would play out over the course of 2021 and then also in coming years. So we expected you know, the biggest surge to occur in 2020 more due to the lack of availability of a vaccine, right? We didn't you know, achieve availability of a vaccine until the end of 2020 in December. Um, and so, you know, really exciting, uh, monumental milestone. Um, but again, we you know, were quite conservative in terms of how we expected vaccines to be rolled out, um, how we expected inoculation to be handled, um, and ultimately how long it would take for us to achieve herd immunity. Um, and so we created three different scenarios, right? A, a worst case scenario, an average scenario, and a best case scenario. And so ultimately, you know, looking at how these different scenarios would play out, what level of, of inoculation we would achieve, um, that's, you know, how we ultimately landed on. We will see a decrease in the volume of visits over the course of 2021 because we will start to see consumers feel safe about returning to in-person visits. Right? And we will see more clinicians also feeling safe about bringing patients back into their offices because they will feel protected against the exposure uh, to COVID-19. So we do expect the visit volumes to normalize over 2021. Um, so that does mean a decrease between 2020 and 2021. Um, and it, the vaccination is a, a key driver of that volume. I think at the end of the day, you know, virtual care is healthcare. Right. Period. End. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, whether it, you know, care is being delivered, you know, over video, over audio, over asynchronous secure message, right? It has become an integral part of the way that we receive care, um, and it's changed the way that we make healthcare accessible um, to so many more individuals. And so, you know, I think if folks are are hesitant or still on the fence. Um, I think at this point, the, you know, those individuals are hard to find. <laughs> so at this point, you know, if you're not making investments in your virtual care strategy, um, I, you know, highly encourage you to do so. Otherwise, you will get left behind. Uh, virtual care has also made it so that we are no longer, you know, encumbered by geographic barriers, for instance. When I think about competition, uh, we think about competition for, for health systems. You know, you look at the Mayo Clinic, for example, right? The Mayo Clinic wants to be everywhere. And so, right, if I can get care from the Mayo Clinic, fantastic, right? Or some other center of excellence, and I can do so over, over virtual care, and I no longer have to worry about hopping on a plane, right? And, and flying to the Mayo Clinic, that's really exciting. And so, it, it, we think about, you know, the ability to bring world class healthcare, right, to you know, wherever you are, right? And ultimately meeting the customer where they are, which is really exciting. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to see how virtual care continues to play out over the course of this year and, and in the future. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ariel. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.